We're taking just a brief break this week from our series through Mark. If you haven't been here, we've been going through the book of Mark, verse by verse, kind of section by section. But uh, today we're just going to do something a little bit different. If you didn't know, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Has any of you ever heard of that term before? It marks the... uh, the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, that was made in 1973. Of course, that same decision was overturned by our Supreme Court this past year. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and these, these court decisions both have to do with, of course, the issue of abortion. That's the issue we're going to look at today. Uh, We, as Christians, need to train ourselves to see these um, hot-button issues, if you want to call them that, through a biblical lens, not a cultural lens or an emotional lens, right? So, I hope to help with that today. Let me start uh, this way. When we hear the term abortion, let me tell you what we've probably all been conditioned to think, okay? You tell me if you think this is right in your own mind. We've been conditioned by our culture and and the media in our culture to think that abortion is a political issue. Would you agree with that? It's been presented to us that way, right? It's a blue versus red thing. It's a Democrat versus Republican thing. And we get to hear umpteen opinions on it by the talking heads of every news channel that you can flip to on your TV. And I even think that Christians, we have allowed, um, we've slowly allowed this issue in our own minds to, to sort of morph into something that ends up turning into more of a preference thing, an opinion, a thing that sits uh, squarely in the political realm. We could just take it or leave it, right? But I want to say something this morning just as clearly as I possibly can. Abortion is not a political issue. It is a moral issue, right? This is not something that the God of heaven is indifferent about. This is not something that, he, uh, that he's left up to us to figure out. Uh, you know, I'll leave it up to you down there on the earth to, to figure out what works best in each of your situations. No. God has spoken very clearly on this issue. He is not neutral about it. He is not uncaring about it. And since he has spoken about it, we, as his people and as his creatures, have a moral obligation to obey our creator with respect to this. Whatever he says about a particular issue, that's the truth about it, right? Are you with me so far? Okay. So just uh, as a, a minister of the gospel, as a pastor... I just want to boldly proclaim this morning what God says about abortion. 
And by the way, this isn't a message uh, just for people out there somewhere. Um, I want to help us firm up our commitments, we might say, to what God says, to know why we believe what we believe about abortion. Is it just our opinion? Have we been trained by one side of the political aisle, or are we listening to what God says? So let's set the scene for a moment, shall we? As I said earlier, the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned this past year, and that is a great thing. We praise God for that. But what did overturning that decision do exactly? Did it end abortion? Not even close. I hope we all realize that. There seems to be among some people a misunderstanding uh, about that. All the overturning of that decision did was put the individual states to let them decide what they want to do in their particular state. So really, the battle's just begun, right? It just started, basically. All of the people in the, in, in the political realm um, who claimed to be pro-life and who were hiding behind Roe v. Wade, well, I, I really would love abortion to end, but you know, there's Roe v. Wade. We just can't do a whole lot. That curtain has been torn down, and now we will see who's really pro-life, right? No excuses. So let's put this into perspective, though. I'm going to try to do it kind of starkly here, okay? Hitler in Nazi Germany killed an estimated 6 million Jewish people in the 1930s and 40s. We call it the Holocaust. And the Holocaust, that term, it just means a slaughter on a mass scale. That's what that word means. And the Nazis did that to those Jewish people because they said, and you can read many of their writings, they essentially said, that's not a human being, that's a Jew. It's subhuman. And we all rightly grieve over what happened in Nazi Germany. It was horrific, wicked things that went down. And yet, we as the United States of America are engaging in the same thing. We say of unborn babies, that's not a human That's subhuman, or at least it's not a human yet. Or we use other terminology that in similar ways undermines the humanity of the unborn person. And as a result of that kind of thinking, there has been an atrocity to the tune of not six million but 63 million babies in the past 50 years. And we're still counting. The atrocity is still happening. No one has stopped it yet. To bring the numbers uh, just a little closer to home, 
I looked up the number of babies who were killed by abortion in South Carolina and Georgia, just our two kind of sister states here that we're very familiar with. We live right on the border. I don't know if you, when you go somewhere and people ask you where you're from, I say close to Augusta, Georgia, because if I say Jackson, nobody knows where that is. So I'm kind of in both states, right? This is, we're going back and forth to Augusta all the time. We, we kind of live in South Carolina and Georgia. But I looked up the abortion numbers for our two states here only for a three-year span from 2019 to 2021, okay? And these are the reported numbers by the Department of Health. This is not some Joe Schmo website who is uh, scamming the numbers. This is from the Department of Health in each state. Here's what I found. I'm going to put it in in a little different way here before I tell you the total. We could go to Neyland Stadium where the Tennessee Volunteers play in Knoxville, Tennessee. We could go to their stadium. It's one of the largest college football stadiums in the country. It holds 102,455 people. Massive stadium. Some of you have been there. Craig, have you been there? With Miss Jane, no doubt. Um, Massive stadium. I've been there in my time on the drum line at University of South Carolina. It was a great time. But that stadium is a massive stadium. And here's the thing as it relates to these numbers. We could fill every seat of that stadium with a picture of an aborted baby from 2019 to 2021 from Georgia and South Carolina alone. And we would fill every seat in the stadium and there would still be left over 11,285 pictures that we would not have seats for. 113,740 human beings killed in the last three years in our two sister states. That is unfathomable to me. There is blood crying out to God. A lot of it. You remember when Cain killed his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4? What did God say to him? He said, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Genesis 4.10. And I just think about if Abel's blood, one guy... If Abel's blood is crying out to God because he was unjustly murdered, what must the blood of 63 million unborn babies do in God's ears? God help us. My aim today is not shock value or manipulation of your emotions, although some shock would be appropriate for the situation that we're in. But I want to, my principal aim is to, for us to go to the Word of God and to see what He says about this issue, and we'll just trace God's view of abortion by looking at several passages of Scripture. And hopefully, this will strengthen, and as I said, firm up our commitments to God's truth in this area, okay? Hopefully, this will be a basic answer to the question, what does God think about abortion? So here's point number one. 
Human beings are made in God's image. Turn in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. This verse is an absolutely foundational verse to how we need to view human life. Give you just a minute to find it. Genesis 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's a question for your consideration. Are human beings special in any sort of way? Or are we just, uh, as much of our culture would say, are we just a more evolved animal? The atheistic, naturalistic worldview says that human beings are just that. More evolved animals. From goo to you by way of the zoo. (laughs) From fish to philosophers, essentially. And that worldview says there's really nothing about us that makes us any more valuable than, say, a kangaroo or a turtle or a snail. Thankfully, though, most atheists don't live like that. They do treat people with respect and dignity, but when they do so, they're in contradiction to what they actually say they believe about human beings. Do you realize that? They say we're not anything special, but they live like we are. There's a dissonance for sure that should bother them if it doesn't. But what does God say about us here in Genesis 1.27? says he created us, that is human beings, both male and female, in his own image. And you will not find any place in Scripture where it says that God created any other creatures in His image. God created everything with its own kind of uh, beauty and function and purpose that brings Him glory in its own kind of way. But only humans are made in God's image. And we could have a long conversation, couldn't we, about what does that mean to be created, to be made in God's image. I think there's a lot to think about there. But at the very least, it carries the idea that we are extremely valuable, right? Human life is valuable. It's special. There's a sacredness to it. That's what sanctity means. It's sacred. We are made in the image of God. If you turn the phrase just a little bit, we can say this about every single human being. We are all image bearers of God. That goes for every human being, by the way. Male, female, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the religion they follow, it doesn't matter when it comes to this All human beings are made in the image of God. 
No matter how much we might differ from someone, uh, they might have a totally different belief system. And it might be wrong. It might be a false religion. But this is still true of them. There is a fellow image bearer of God. And my duty before God is to love them and to care for them and to treat them as valuable because they are, because life is sacred. We're made in God's image. And here's the point as it relates to abortion. The baby, not yet born, living inside its mother's womb is also an image bearer of God. It is. And it is nothing but pure arbitrariness to try to assign worth to a human being only when they reach a certain level of arbitrary development that you deem the right one or that I deem the right one or whatever stage of life all of a sudden it becomes more than it was before with respect to value. That is pure arbitrariness on our part. Is it only valuable after it leaves the birth canal, for instance? Does it only become a human being uh, worthy of protection when we think it can feel pain? Is it a person, is a person not an image bearer of God until after it has a detectable heartbeat? We assign, our culture assigns these arbitrary time frames as points of reference at which an unborn baby somehow becomes magically more valuable than it was just prior to that. But God does no such thing. In fact, God says he is highly involved in the formation of unborn babies inside their mother's womb from the very beginning from the point of fertilization. Let's look together at Psalm 139. You're welcome to turn there, but I'll bring it up on the screen as well. Let's look at this to see how much God is involved, okay? I'm gonna read Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, and it's up there if you would like to read it either in your Bible or there. Here's what the psalmist says. For you, that's God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We'll stop there. God himself forms each baby inside the womb before anyone knows, before anyone sees, God sees, and God is there. 
To us, uh, much of the developmental process is hidden, as if it were hidden in the depths of the earth where we can't see it, the psalmist says. In other words, no one sees it, but God sees it. God is active there. Notice all the words that he used there. I'm going to underline some of them. God was there forming, knitting, making, working, intricately weaving. Do those verses shed any light on what is going on in a mother's womb from the very beginning of each of our existence? It is so vividly clear, isn't it? A mother's womb is a sacred space. It's like, if we might say it like this, it's like the art studio of God. He's working on another masterpiece in there, we might say. Imagine an artist just intricately painting this beautiful work of art. Some of you are artists in here. Imagine that artist, and he's, he's leaning in. He's making these precise, detailed brush strokes. He's fashioning a masterpiece. And you look at it, and you're like, wow, he's not even done yet. It's maybe the most beautiful painting I've ever seen. Some of his best work is right there in front of him. And then imagine that someone storms up and rips that painting into a hundred pieces. They totally demolish what the painter had done. That's what happens in abortion. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are made in His image, fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven by God Himself in our mother's womb, and yet we will go into that sacred space, a space that should be the safest of all places for God's masterpieces. This little human being, being made in his image, and we will tear it to pieces. Literally, by the way. Not to get too grotesque here, but we do need to realize that a common method used today, today, not today, 50 years ago, a common method used today is dismembering and disemboweling the bodies of these little image bearers of God. And this goes on right under our noses. On the corner next to the grocery store, perhaps, where the clinic is. Or next to the Walmart or down by the pet store. There's just a normal-looking building there. And yet what's going on inside there is an atrocity over and over and over again, hundreds of times per day in America. If that isn't spitting in God's face, I'm not sure what is. It's like joining Satan, if I may say so. Satan wants to destroy the work of God in whatever way he possibly can. He wants to ruin it. He wants to mar it. And if he can destroy these little works of God before they even get started very well, he's happy. That's abortion. Human beings are made in the image of God, and just that one truth alone refutes the legitimacy of it. 
but let's continue. Number two, God prohibits murder. The children at Awana, I think they've just started learning the Ten Commandments. I hope we all know the Ten Commandments. The little pictures that they have associated with them are still helping me to this day remember. I can remember what the Fourth Commandment is or the Eighth by picturing the little image that went along with it. But I hope we all know these Ten Commandments because God's law, not just those ten, but all of His law, is a reflection of His holy character. And His people, God's people, are to be emulators of that character. And although God has fulfilled some of the ceremonial portions of the law through the sacrifice of Jesus, His moral law really hasn't changed because His character hasn't changed. The moral law is still a reflection of his character. And much of the moral law is actually repeated in the New Testament. But what does the sixth commandment say? Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. The King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. That could be somewhat confusing to us, but what it's referring to is murder. Murder is the unrighteous slaying of another person. It's the, to reword it, it's the unlawful, premeditated killing of another human being by another human being. Now, without getting too off track... I do believe there is some killing, some taking of human life that is justified in the sight of God. God says, for instance, in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So I take that as image bearers are so valuable before God that if someone were to take another human being's life unjustly, then they have forfeited their right to live. That's what God says. Or how about the role of government in, um, as laid out to us in Romans 13 in the New Testament? God tells us there that the government's role, how he designed human government to work is they are supposed to have their hands in every part of our lives. Is that right? Is that what it says? No. And I'm joking there, but I'm not saying this out of any sort of um, secular libertarian stance or something. I'm I'm just trying to be faithful to what God says, because in Romans 13, it says that he appointed the government, the, the civil magistrate, to only do a few things. To punish evil is the main one. To punish evil. And it says that human government is intended to be God's servant or God's deacon to carry out his wrath on the wrongdoer. And it even says that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. So there's a legitimate use of the sword by the government to protect human life and to punish evil. God gives the government that power. So you put all that together with Genesis 9, and you just see 
The government is designed and expected to punish evil and protect human life. That is the role and responsibility of government. Now, have we strayed from that in America? Absolutely. Quite a bit, unfortunately. Let's think about abortion the way that our government sees it, for the most part. We have a government that is supposed to bear the sword against evildoers and who is supposed to be protecting human life. And we have the exact opposite taking place. Instead of protecting human life, they have set out to say that they are protecting human choice. If you would like to kill your baby, go right ahead. That's your choice. You don't want anybody getting in the way of a woman's choice. That's part of women's health care is the way it's put to us sometimes. And they dress it up with all these different terms that really soften what it really is. I mean, just the term abortion is a euphemism. Or we might say today, it seems like the most common phrase for it is just ending the pregnancy A woman should have the right to end her pregnancy if she wants to. And really all of that is just euphemistic language for what's actually taken place, which is the murder of an image bearer of God. And the government who should be protecting these babies hands over the sword to others who end up wielding the sword against the very ones that should be protected, the most defenseless among us. So as I said, the people of God, we need to firm up our commitments to God's word in this area. I'm not saying we didn't already believe most of these things, but we need to firm up our commitments to this. We need to call abortion what it is. It's murder. And we, as God's people, as God's church, who know what he says about this, we have to be the ones to seek Equal protection and justice for all image bearers of God, including unborn children. We shouldn't settle for heartbeat bills. We shouldn't settle for measures that would make it okay to kill this group of unborn children, but not these. To me, that's unjust. That's having unequal weights and measures, as it says in Proverbs 20, verse 10. Let us not use unequal weights and measures when it comes to justice for the unborn. We could also talk about how uh, much of abortion legislation today is basically exhibiting the sin of partiality that James chapter 2 is talking about. Protecting some who we deem worthy of protection, but kind of setting these others aside. That's partiality. Christians ought to seek the abolition of abortion. The total doing away with it. We don't just love our neighbors who have a detectable heartbeat. We don't just love our neighbors who have um, pain receptors. They don't 
become more valuable when they're wanted by their parents versus if they're not wanted. That makes zero difference in the eyes of God as to the humanity and the worth of that child. And just to speak very frankly, the exceptions that people make for this, the exceptions that the wider public have made in their minds for abortion that end up coming out in our laws are just plain terrible. For instance, what about rape? Shouldn't we make exceptions for rape? And we, of course, want to be very sensitive here toward victims of rape. Rape is a horrific act. It's wicked. It's violating another image bearer's body against their will. But why do that very same thing against the baby? who is the most innocent party of the whole thing. Is an abortion also the violation of another image bearer's body against their will? Why make a baby pay for the sins of their father? We should care for the women who've been raped and we should punish the rapists to the fullest extent of the law. The rapist is the one who deserves the punishment, not babies, right? But what about that woman or that young woman or that girl? Every time she looks at that child, they say, conceived by rape, she'll just be reminded of that heinous crime that was committed against her. Why should she have to endure that? How should we think through that? We have to say, well, she, she may indeed suffer painful memories. Nobody can say otherwise. It's foolish to think she'll never have painful memories. As a matter of fact, even if her attacker is punished to the fullest extent of the law, it's still going to be extremely hard on her, isn't it? But here's a question that we have to ask. How do we think our society should treat innocent human beings that remind us of a painful event? Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? We often look at these things through an emotional lens instead of grounding it in God's truth. Sometimes the right thing to do is often not the easy thing to do. Thirdly, God provides equal protection and justice for unborn babies in his law. This ought to be instructive for us too. Have you heard of the concept an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And so forth. That principle is found in the Bible several times. And it's interesting to me that the very first instance that it's found is in Exodus 21, and it's in the context of harm done to who? Unborn babies. Does God care about harm done to unborn babies? Listen to this. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. In other words, the child was born early as a result of this trauma to the mother, but the child ends up being okay. Then the one who hit her 
shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the judge he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, if her children come out and there's something wrong, or the child is dead, for instance, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So what do you think? Does God care about harming unborn children? That is about as obvious and clear as it gets, right? If someone hits a pregnant woman, causes her to go into labor, and there's harm to her or her baby, then you repay the person life for life, eye for eye, according to God's law. The unborn baby, in other words, is treated with just as much protection as the mother is. Equal justice for the unborn is what you find in God's law. And here's another passage that's extremely relevant. It's Proverbs 6, verse 17. Did you know the Bible says God hates some things? Think about that. What is it that God hates then? What is so bad that God would say, I hate that? Proverbs 6, 17 says, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. There are some things that God hates. He he doesn't find this um, mildly distasteful. He doesn't say, well, that's not what I would have done, but if you think that's the best for your society, I guess go ahead and do it. No, he says, I hate hands that shed innocent blood. And what is abortion but shedding the blood of innocent babies? Innocent image bearers of God. So we have to conclude, God hates abortion then. Plain and simple. Let's recap for a moment here. God says, human beings are made in his image. All human beings, by the way, are image bearers of God. And their value doesn't start when they're born, when they emerge from the birth canal or come out via C-section, but their value begins from the moment their life begins, the moment of fertilization. At that moment, everything is present there to form a distinct human being, separate from its mother, separate DNA and everything. So when a human life comes into being in the womb, no matter what stage it's in, we must see it as an image bearer of God, a masterpiece of God, worthy of equal protection because that's how God sees it. Now, maybe um, you've heard all this this morning and you feel a righteous indignation for this evil that's taking place in our country, a righteous anger over it. And maybe you're looking at the state of the world and you're saying, I don't see how we can really do anything about this. It's too big. It's too far gone. The machine is unstoppable. Let me give you two categories, at least, of things that we can do, okay, as people of God. The first category, we can try to rescue those who are being led to the slaughter. 
There's actually a chilling passage of Scripture in Proverbs 24 that I want to read to you this morning pertaining to this. This is Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? According to the word of God, we are to be rescuing those who are being led to the slaughter. Are unborn babies being led to the slaughter? Every day. Do we know what's going on? Yes, we do. We can't claim ignorance. If we say, behold, we did not know this. We did not know it was happening like this, Lord. God says he weighs the hearts. He knows. It's hard. I realize that. But he knows. And the implication is, you see what's going on. You rescue them. Do everything you can. Now, how do we do that, though? Here's just several practical things we can do. Some are small, some are bigger. We can speak about it every chance that we get. We can open our mouths and have conversations with people. And I know that seems intimidating sometimes, but we just have to. We have to lovingly provide people with a solid biblical foundation like the one I've tried to share today about what God thinks of human life and image bearers of God. We can also prepare ourselves to argue in the best sense of that word. In other words, making good arguments with people who advocate for abortion. There are many solid biblical even just logical answers to pro-choice, pro-abortion arguments, we ought to bone up on those. We ought to know them well. Do our research, right? Prepare ourselves to defend the biblical position. Sometimes, you know, we get intimidated. We have this terrible interaction with someone. It doesn't go well. We don't think people will ever change their mind, and it just leads us to dropping out of those types of conversations totally. And I get it, by the way. There's some areas where you would not want to have a conversation like this. This might not be an area where Facebook is going to shine too much for you. Something like that. I'm talking about face-to-face here. But we can endeavor to educate ourselves and, and learn the best arguments for our viewpoint, and maybe we can do a better job on the next conversation, right? It takes some effort, though, that's for sure. And I can help point you to good resources. I wish we had time in this message just to go through a few of the most common arguments and and answer some of those arguments, but we just don't have the time to do it today. But I can point you to good resources if you'll come see me. What's other ways we rescue those being led to the slaughter? Well, it might mean going to the very gates of hell, to the very abortion mills themselves and trying to minister to people there. Maybe you go and you preach the gospel to people entering those places. 
I'm not talking about being the person there that's hatefully berating women as they go in. I'm talking about being the person there who's pleading with them in love, telling them not to go through with it, telling them there's ways we can help them, telling them there's a God in heaven who is a God of justice but a God of mercy too if they'll turn to him. It might mean working at a crisis pregnancy center to help women with their needs while they're pregnant and encourage them to even work toward abortion, I mean, excuse me, to adoption. Scratch that one from the record. Totally misspoke there. Encourage them to work toward adoption if that's their desire. And we can certainly cast our votes for politicians that stand for life and don't stand for the culture of death that's so prevalent. We can reach out to state representatives and let them know, hey, I want you to support any bill that has to do with the abolition of abortion. Believe it or not, actually, in this year, 2023, there's many states that bills of abolition are coming up for vote. Georgia's one of them. But those politicians represent us. Let them know, I want you to vote for this. Hold them accountable. There's actually a great website I can share with you. This, this particular organization has for every single state of the United States has compiled all of the representatives with their emails and phone numbers. Click on it, boom, you're emailing them. Just email all of them, call all of them. There's there's an example of something we can do. A lot of the legwork has been done for us. And let's not forget one of the biggest ones, we can pray. We can pray that God will end abortion, that he will make it not just illegal, but make it unthinkable. God works through his people's prayers. There are so many things we can do, but here's probably the biggest, and so I've listed it separately, okay? It could be tied into the one we just, we just went over, but here's number two. We can just preach the gospel. What is it that has to happen for people to really change their mind about anything especially of spiritual significance. What has to happen? They need a new heart, just like you and I did. And only the Spirit can grant a new heart. And how does He do that? He grants it through the means of the preached Word by all of His people. He works through our witnessing. So how can we fight against abortion? We can just obey the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that I've said. And if we're faithful in that, God might see fit to just grant revival. Who knows? We never know. But whether he does that or not, our job's still the same, just to be faithful to obey him, right? Ultimately, abortion's only been going to come It's only going to become unthinkable through a radical change of heart brought about by the power of the Spirit through the gospel. That's it. So, yes, give your good pro-life arguments based on Scripture, based on logic and good moral principles, but give the gospel. And then we can just be like the farmer in Mark 4 where he lays down and goes to sleep. In other words... Now let God do the rest of the work. 
And let's not determine what he can or can't do. Nothing is impossible with God. And I want to say this before I close too. I save this for the end. But you might be here today and you might have listened to this whole sermon and you found this very hard to listen to. Maybe you're a mother who has had an abortion in the past and not very many people know except you. Or maybe you're a father who played a part in convincing a woman to have an abortion sometime in your past or something like that. I want you to hear this. And I hope you've seen it already. That I've only said what I've said this morning because the Word of God says it. And I've only called it murder because that's what God says it is. I can't soften that. It's, it's too plain. But there is something else that God says. He says that he's a God who's rich in mercy. And that anyone, murderers included, can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. So the power of God's grace reaches even to the murderer, to the abortionist, to the mother or father or perhaps the grandparent who played a part in killing a baby. I can't preach a gospel of grace to you without calling sin what it is. And we can't repent of something that we don't see as a grave sin. So I've just tried to shoot pretty straight this morning about this particular sin. But make no mistake, God saves sinners. And I'm a sinner. And everyone in this room is a sinner. Every person watching this later or listening to it later is a sinner. And praise God... Christ's power to forgive and to cleanse is stronger than our power to sin. We just sang it, didn't we? In Christ, there's grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Or in the words of Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if you look around the room this morning, you'll see fellow sinners who... If they're right with God, it wasn't because they're better than you. It was because God put all their and my filthy, stinking sin on Jesus. And he paid for all of it. And we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And that can be true of anyone who has had an abortion or been involved in one. If you're broken over your sin and you want to be forgiven and cleansed of it, that's what you do. You run to Jesus. He'll embrace you. He'll cleanse you. He'll make you right with God. And at that point, you're, you're not a murderer. You're not an adulterer. You're not a sinner, at least in your identity. Your new identity will be, I am in Christ. I'm a new person. Jesus takes that sin and nails it to his cross and it's fully paid for. Praise the Lord. So what I'm saying is this God 
of justice, who loves the unborn, who provides equal protection for them in his law, and who forms them and fashions them and loves them, and who even hates hands that shed their blood, that same God provides a way of salvation and redemption if you will turn from that sin and come to him. And I found in Ephesians 2, I know you've seen it too, he loves to make sinners the trophies of his grace. Ephesians 2 talks about how he's shown mercy to us Even we were dead in our trespasses. And it says, in the coming ages, guess what he's going to be doing? He's going to be showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. He's going to use us as a show and tell for the entire universe. He's going to say, look at what I've done for those wretched sinners. Look how I changed them. Look at what they were. Look at what they are now. I drew them out of their sin and I made them sons and daughters. And that brings them great glory. So your sin might be great. You might have committed the exact sin we've been talking about today, but God can and will forgive. You don't have to hide in shame for the rest of your life about that. He'll pay for it. That's the God of the Bible. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us as your people just to firm up our commitments to your word? We want to stand up for the helpless. We want to love our unborn neighbors who are fellow image bearers. Lord, we want to thank you for what you did this past year, seeing fit in your sovereignty to have that massive Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, overturned, Lord, but we desire to see this purged of our land totally. Lord, help us to get in the fight whatever way we can. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of your gospel, calling sin what it is, and yet holding up your grace for those who are sinners just like us. Lord, help us to remember you're the king. This is your world. There's nothing too hard for you. Show us how to better take a stand for justice and equal protection of all image bearers of God. And Lord, even if abortion is not abolished in our lifetime, may people down through history at least be able to look back on us and say, you know what, those people stood for justice. In the midst of, a, of the brutality of what was going on, they stood in the right. They stood on the word of God. Lord, make us faithful and brave. Make us wise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.